This is Paul Moon, director of the documentary Samuel Barber, Absolute Beauty, and you're listening to the third episode of what has become an occasional podcast series in the film's afterlife. I've called it Capricorn Conversations to focus on some more American musicians and composers connected with that era of American music, who might just as well have converged at that house named Capricorn where Barber and Minotti lived, famous for being a crossroads of 20th century composers. I'm sitting here with Barbara Heyman in New York City, whose definitive second edition was published just two weeks ago by Oxford University Press. Barbara, thanks for bringing us up to date. It's my pleasure. And here we are on Barbara's 110th birthday just today. Yes. March 9th. So other milestones. It's been almost 30 years since your first edition. So the arrival of this second edition means we have the privilege today of hearing you describe what's changed. And I have notes to help us along in that regard because there's a lot of material, but we'll go through some of the highlights. But I thought it would be a good idea before that to just sort of lay the groundwork and to briefly describe, you know, what led up to that first edition. So I'd love just a little biographical history of how how you ended up taking this on, which has now turned into a, a long project, if to put it lightly. Well, when I graduated from Barnard in 1955, my piano teacher wanted me to go to a conservatory, but I had a full scholarship to Columbia University School of Social Work, so it was a no-brainer. I didn't have enough confidence in myself as a practicing performing musician. And he said to me, okay, if you're not going to be a professional, be an amateur in the highest sense of the word for the love of it, but bring professional standards to your practicing. So when I went on to graduate school in social work, I continued to play the piano every lunch hour of of where I was, uh, you know, practicing social work uh, for my master's degree. Um, And... Then I got married, had four children, lived on Long Island, and I wanted all of my kids to play stringed instruments so that I would have a piano quartet. Well, when my oldest gave up the violin at the age of 13, and I wept for one minute, I realized you can't expect your children to live out your dreams, and so I decided to study violin. And I'm telling you this because one thing led to another, ultimately, playing the violin, I played in an orchestra, and a a community orchestra on Long Island. And the conductor uh, recognized that I was very interested in the history of, at the time it was Gustav Mahler. And I had read a biography of him um, that was quite wonderful. And he suggested, the conductor, that I go back to school uh, for a master's in music history. So I thought the reason to do this is because then I would be playing with students Amateurs very often think they, they can done it this way all their life, they would say to me, and they can't change. Whereas I always saw myself as a student. Even though I had been out of school for 20 years, I registered at the City University of New York, Queens College, and I found with my experience, I was questioning authority. The teacher wasn't always right. I could give an example uh, about that. For example, uh, in one of our classes, with Edward Downs, who was well-known. 
well known as the son of Olin Downs, the music critic. We had to write a, a review of a Tanglewood concert, a concert from Tanglewood, an all Bach program that Neville Mariner conducted. Uh, and the Bach Brandenburg III was one of the pieces. And I wrote, it was refreshing that they did not beef up the Boston Symphony, the, the sound with a big Boston Symphony sound. Uh, but it sounded like they had used the original forces. Uh, and Downs objected to this. Couldn't you hear that big sound? And I wrote to Michael Steinberg, who was at the time writing program notes, and I said, did you use four or three or four uh, uh, quartets so that they, all the violins are not together, all the cellos are not together. They're separated in quartets, which gives a much richer texture. And he wrote back, yes, and I, they did. And I ran running into class with my, you know, letter and down said to me, surprised he even answered you. Now, the person who was most impressed with this was the head of the doctoral program. And so he recruited me to come in. And at the time, they were doing a lot of, of publishing, a big 60-volume series on the classical symphony. And he made me associate editor. Barry Brook made me associate editor of that series that Garland was publishing. And so through the doctoral program at CUNY at that time, I learned about editing, project management, working with scholars. There were more than 123 scholars working on this series. And when I, and when I finished my coursework, it was time then for me to get a full-time job. And I did at Brooklyn College in the publications department subsequently becoming director of publications. But uh, I was writing my dissertation at the same time. Samuel Barber had just died a year before I began my dissertation. Uh, I knew that there had not been any full-length biography of him, and um, that many of the people who knew him were still alive, people who had gone to Curtis Institute of Music with them. Uh, and that I could, I wanted to combine an oral history component to my work. I was not interested in doing a, an uh, analytical or music theory approach. Um, and also, can we call this a biography or not really? I'm interested in the way that you use the term documentary as a, one way to describe what you did. Well, it, it is a biography. Um, but but my motivation was to find out what were the influences that made him write the kind of music that he wrote. Um, and not so much uh, describe the pieces, I mean, I, you know, in, in terms of uh, analysis, theoretical analysis, uh, only insofar as they revealed to the, the general reader as well as the professional reader. Um, what his methodology was, what who influenced what influenced him. Uh, so I was able to find out very early on, in fact, that he worked closely with the person who was going to perform the work to see what their strengths and predilections were. And that was what he wrote into the music. Uh, and the first person I interviewed, one of the first, oh, I was about 
I was working, I guess, about a year doing research when my supervisor, my advisor, Sherman Van Sulkema, said to me, look, I know you're not finished the research, but write one chapter. I don't care if it's the first, the last, or the middle, but that will give you an idea of what it is you need to find out for the rest of the book. And so I wrote the middle three chapters, uh, <clears throat> one on the, vi on the violin concerto, the, um, the cello sonata, and the cello concerto. Um, Raya Garbazova, who was the person who commissioned it, told me that Barber had invited her up to his house in Mount Kisco and had her play through all of the etudes that she had learned, as well as her repertoire, so he could write her strengths and predilections into the music. Um, and there are things in there, she said, that nobody else could play but her, of course, <laughs> you know. So the, the book took seven years. Essentially, the dissertation took seven years, but then converting it to a book maybe took me a year or two after that. Um, and so I, we're talking 1992. That's when it was published. When it was yeah, published. Right. And I, I got my doctoral degree in 1988. I see. Um, what, so if we want to see the whole picture of that first edition, and then there's something in the middle there, and it's an interesting phrase. It sounds, you've described it to me in the past as something of a, of a, of a, of a standard thing, if you will. But it's called the thematic catalog of complete works. Right. What is the distinction between this biographical book and now second edition and this other thematic catalog of the complete well, works? Well, a thematic catalog first has the opening measures of every piece. Um, it tells the stark de details, when it was written, um, where it was written, who it was written for, um, <clears throat> um, the, um, the first performance, who gave it, uh, recordings. Um, I'm hard put to remember everything. Sure, a lot sure. of detail, but not a narrative, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, and then that... That being, took me 10 years to do. Sure. And then you surely found a lot of new information that sets us up for this second edition, no doubt. Well, absolutely. But also, my book, one, one of the things that I remember my advisor saying to me was, when I felt inept about an analyzing Barbara's music. He said, don't worry. He said, what you're doing is stimulating other people to do that. And that's what happened. There were a lot of dissertations that came out afterwards and with a, a sort of a, an analysis of the work. Um, and... Um, well, let's talk about a little bit about analysis. Let's, let's get Barbara in the mix here, too. Barbara... As a personality, of course, we, we, we have, we've already gotten to know him in many ways, but we also, today, we'll get to know him a little further. But I think one thing that's well known is that he wasn't much, he wasn't much interested in self-analysis, nor was he really even much of a teacher. I don't think he held or ever held a pro professor post. I mean, what, what, are, what is that about? It, was he modest? Was it something else? Did he think that the music should speak for itself? Because biographers oftentimes draw from pri the primary source of the composer himself or herself. Well, I did, certainly in second edition. There was a diary that, dis that um, was discovered um, that he kept his 17th year. And in fact, I'm going to publish that next. 
That's my project right now. Spoiler. Um, When he was at the end of his 16th year, full through his 17th year, there are themes that run in the beginning of his 18th, before he had met Giancarlo Minotti, whom he lived with for 30 years up in Mount Pisco. Um, Well, I'd love to just start going through some of the new material. It's a great first place for people who are familiar with the first edition to just read the preface and people can do that um, when they get the second edition. But there's a, in particular, a nice um, listing of the various new editions. I'm actually going out of order because, to be honest, the most dramatic and sort of, if you will, mysterious story is what you describe as the dumpster, dumpster suitcase, dumpster right? Yeah. So basically, I'd love for you to tell us the story of the dumpster suitcase from top to bottom, and then tell us what was in it. Okay, this is interesting, but the one of the people that I interviewed for the first edition was Valentin Harans, Barber's secretary and valet during the last 12 years of his life. And materials there uh, included uh, letters that he had written to his family the first five years that he went to Europe that he had had written on loose-leaf paper, little black loose-leaf notebooks, and then put them back together so that they became a journal of those early trips. And bring me back up to speed. So Valentin Harans, he was serving a role specifically as what? He was, well, he was his valet and secretary when we during say the valet, last, well, I guess, took care of him, okay. you know. It's, it sounds so uh, I know, yeah. <laughs> patrician or something. Yeah, it was, he was his secretary, essentially, yeah. And, and you could say even a nurse in a sense, right? Because Barbara when was Barbara was in the design. hospital, sure, yeah, yeah. He, he probably was the interim person between other people who contacted him. Sure. Um, he... When I went to visit him, and Minotti had told him, give her everything, you know, and I saw manuscripts, okay, but then at the end of the table, there were these notebooks. I said, what are those? He said, oh, you wouldn't be interested in those. They're just letters he wrote to his mom and dad, you know, when he went to Europe. I said, try me, and he let me take those letters home and photocopy them. I was, you know, absolutely, and they became very important to the first edition. You know, I could quote quote them. Um, the diary documented his education at Curtis Institute, uh, his relationship with his family, his ambitions, disappointments, his social interaction, and his quest for the perfect partner, as well as evidence that there were eight James Stevens songs that uh, that he wrote that garnered enthusiastic critical response when his Aunt Louise Homer uh, sang them on national tour. Even though I couldn't find one of them that was over and over again, song, uh, the song Dance, for example. So you have a fount of resources in this Valentin Horan's, and part of it is because I guess maybe this is true for a lot of biographers and documentarians that Usually you get the best stuff towards the end of somebody's life when things are sort of piling up, if you will. When he died, Valentin, I was invited to the Chase Bank, along with people from the Library of Congress and New York Public Library, to see all the materials that he had, a lot of which was actually uh, Barber's Aunt Louise Homer stuff that the New York Public Library has a collection of. But the Library of Congress, what was missing 
were those notebooks that I had seen, yet the diary was what was in that collection. And so the Library of Congress took everything. But uh, many years later, when there was a fire in Valentin's house that he no longer lived after he died, um, there were the, the people who were told to, the house was a brownstone and he lived up on the fifth floor. I don't remember exactly the floor now, but, but um, the boys who were taking out all this, the rubble from this fire were told to throw away everything but stoves and refrigerators. And one of them found a suitcase behind the wall of a closet. And he threw it in the dumpster, but then he and his friend thought maybe there's money inside. So they opened, took it aside, opened it up, and on top there was an honorary degree from the Royal Academy of Music uh, to Samuel Barber, signed by the Queen of England. They did not know who Samuel Barber was, but they figured that the Queen of England's uh, signature would be worth something. So they took the suitcase home, and one of the grandmothers of one of them said, you know, he's a famous composer. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here, music, manuscripts, you know, what we call holograph manuscripts, that is in his pencil hand. And so they went to pawn shops, which is not where you go, but they ended up in a um, an auction house on 91st Street between Madison and Park. And the auction lady was smart enough to realize the value of what was in there and called, I believe it was, I think she called the state senator in Barber's hometown, who then contacted, they indirectly, they contacted me um, as presumably the authority on Barber. This and is, this is true. I went with them and brought the suitcase back to my place. And the first thing I saw when I opened it was a song by the text of which by James Stephen, Dance, that had been sung so, so many times that I had never been able to find. So, and and the, the notebooks that were missing when Valentine died were in this suitcase that was behind the wall. And there were letters to Minotti written in Italian, which I could translate, uh, and this gave more information about their relationship. And it was, you know, it was, well, what I call serendipitous discoveries are sometimes the most important things, things that you don't plan on, but that you accidentally discover. There's another discovery like that, for example, I mean, there are many, but but one of them I, that always comes to mind is I was walking away from a, a meeting, a local meeting of the local chapter of the American Musicological Society up at Columbia, and a friend called to me, Carol Barron, who is the wife of Samuel Barron, who played with the um, the New York Woodwind Quintet. He was, uh, I believe, flute player. And I didn't really want to hear it. I was in the middle of my dissertation, and I thought, oh, yet another question. You're still working on that? <laughs> and so, but I did say I would have coffee with her, fortunately, because what I discovered was that even though Barbara had been commissioned by the Detroit chamber players to write a chamber music piece for them, that he actually wrote his quintet, Summer Music, with 
the uh, the New York woodwind quintet in mind because he had met them up in uh, up in Maine. They had heard his music and he heard them play. And so he went to all of their rehearsals, wrote the, their strengths and the exercises that the um, the French horn player had actually invented for them so that they would have their favorite sounds, their most difficult chords. And he gave those exercises to Barber to read. And Barber then was able to design his uh, quintet, summer music, uh, specifically for them. And he, then when they were rehearsing this, he would make changes when he heard them. So this kind of close collaboration with the artists was something that was typical of him. Yeah. And it really excited me to know that if I hadn't had coffee with Carol Barron, yeah. I might never have known this. Right, right. You know. So if we're going in order of drama, I think the next one on the list um, is the Violin Concerto. And with the Violin Concerto, it's interesting. This is a nice bridge because I like the story you just brought up because instead of being, I think, the, the dramatic thing that's still to this day too often reprinted in program notes and concerts, as if Barber was sitting in a room with the commissioned violin for the entire time he wrote the piece and that there was this sort of, you know, contested relationship. It's so much more complicated than that. So let's lay the groundwork for the Violin Concerto. Okay. Who commissioned it? And what was going on at the time? It wasn't just, you know, Okay, roses. it was before World War II. Right, and but right on the cusp was, of World right, War II. Right, yeah. Barber was commissioned by Samuel Fells, the soap manufacturer, Fells Naphtha. Not everybody knows who he is, but... And for Iso Brizelli, who was a, a young violin student who had come over from Europe and, um, and w was living with... Fells and and Curtis Institute student right and a Curtis Institute student and a colleague of Barber's uh, alma mater by now of that's Barber. right yeah. yeah so he was I I interviewed him and having heard known this story from Nathan Broder that the reason he didn't give the first performance even though it was commissioned for him was quote that he couldn't play the last movement. Uh, I had this feeling that was nonsense because Brizelli was a prodigy mm -hmm. and he could play anything, really. And, and let's remind And our, his our, repertoire was such that I knew that, you know, what was going on. So. And let's add to that the other piece of the story that's mistold is the fact that Barber somewhat furiously wrote the quality of that perpetual motion last movement. Uh, out of, if you will, frustration or to challenge or to get out of the commission or something in that regard. So that's the, the fallacy that's been perpetuated. Yeah, well, Barber so, was writing the concerto in Europe. Okay. And then when the Germans invaded Poland, I believe it, it was, was yeah. he, all Americans were ordered to leave. And so he came back to the States. He had not written the third movement yet. Was he late? In other words, was this tardiness? You know, composers are known for that, turning in scores at the no, last No, he just hadn't gotten to it yet. I see. So he, he was on track. He, he was on schedule. Oh, yeah. He was on schedule. And when he got home, um, he he was distracted because his father was ill. Oh. And I believe it, it was his aunt as well. I'm, I'm having trouble remembering that. But So family issues. It was family issues. 
And uh, Brazelli was supposed to give the first performance, I believe, in December. And this is the Philadelphia Orchestra, right, Eugene Ormandy. Right. And so Barbara's concerto wasn't ready yet. Mm -hmm. That was the thing. And this discovery of, of what actually happened uh, was really came out in important correspondence between Barber and Samuel Fells that was discovered in 2010 by Mark Mostavoy, who was the founder of the Philadelphia Chamber Orchestra at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania that confirmed my doubts about Nathan Broder's account of the events surrounding the commission of the Violin Concerto, um, which in my second edition then, you know, as major revision, there was no question but Brizelli could have played it. But so, so I'd like to, if you will... He didn't give the first performance. Yeah, I, I'd like to sort of maybe be a little facetious here because as I poured through this story too, I was delighted to be able to sort of try to articulate because by the time we were uh, making the documentary, um, this had been clarified and you do clarify it in the documentary too. I think what lingered in my mind was that it was performed after all by somebody else. Yes. And that violinist, um, that violinist was able to learn the piece. In, of course, yeah. Even, even despite a, a late delivery of the score and soon before the performance. And I believe that Brizelli performed it at one point also. Eventually, sure. Yeah. Sure. So what, why not, was it, was it that Brizelli characteristically took more time to learn the pieces or simply that he was on the younger side of his career <laughs> And that he couldn't be expected to bring up to snuff. No, in Barber words. hadn't finished composing it. Right. For so him, why not just? His, he didn't want to postpone his premiere performance, Brizelli. But somebody else was able to pick up and perform the piece. Oh yeah, yeah, because it, because it was formed later, not. Okay. Not, in other words, Brizelli's um, debut with the Philadelphia Orchestra was kept when it you know. In oh, that's interesting. Early. Earlier than and Barbara hadn't finished. Are you saying that Brizelli then just simply performed something else? That's right. I see. Yeah. I see. Uh, that makes sense to me because basically what you're saying is commissions in many cases are sort of almost like I don't know introducing or launching the careers of young artists. So the the funds had been paid, if you will. The right. the commission had been given, and Brizelli had a date to meet, and it was on the program on the season calendar and so on. Barbara so without, had offered, in fact, to give half the commission back. Mm -hmm. Since he didn't finish it in time for Brazelli, got it because of family matters, and you know having been interrupted by having to come back from Europe and everything. Yeah. So. Now, Barbara, that helps a lot because I think that that was the last remaining piece that was mysterious to me. You know, why not just stick to it and then eventually perform it? But the I, I get it now because these symphony calendars and subscriptions and whatnot, they do list the performers and the dates. And so Brazelli got the opportunity, and he stuck to it. And he just played something else. That's it sounds right. Like, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. Let's talk about a few other pieces. Um, Harold Spivak. He was the Librarian of Congress, right? And there's a there's a relationship there yeah. um, for several pieces. Another new discovery is something about, and this is heartbreaking when you think of the fact that there might have someday have been uh, a second string quartet. So let's, of course, explain. The first string quartet is famous for what? <laughs> well, it's famous for the second movement. That's right. That Barber arranged for string orchestra when Toscanini 
It's a wonderful story, actually. We know it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we know it. I don't have to go through that. No, but, but but what we can say is that that first. But the adagio for strings, sure. which is uh, certainly the piece that I, when I get into a taxi and you know get in a conversation with the the driver, so I'll say, "Well, you know at least one of his pieces, even if you didn't know his name or who wrote it, because every time somebody important dies." Or there's a tragedy in the world, like after 9-11, they played it on the radio over and over and over again. Sure. And ironically, it was written at one of the happiest times of his life. Yeah. Um, but it's elegiac and sad, mm -hmm. and it is one of his most famous pieces. So when, when this new correspondence with um, Harold Spivak, the Librarian of Congress, about a about potential a second, commission, yeah. the second string quartet... What time period in Barber's life in general are we talking about? Is this late, middle, or early? Uh, that was... Probably on the later side, wasn't it? Yeah, it was on the later side, but it was actually not really. It, it ended up being hermit songs, so it was in the 50s. I see. So one thing led to another, which was essentially a birthday gift for the commissioning funds for Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge, I believe. But in any yes, case, it was for yes, Elizabeth yeah. Sprague Coolidge. Which is the name of that auditorium where Hermit Songs premiered with Layton Price and Barbara on the yeah. piano. Yeah. But I guess what's interesting to me is is what would that second string quartet have sounded like? We'll never well, know. Well, there are actually there are some sketches of of what probably was the beginning of it. Uh, which are at the Library of Congress. Well, tell me how that detective work works. I mean, I think of you as a detective. You kind of well, piece together I, puzzle pieces, don't exactly you? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. It's um... well. First of all, you saw that there were just four parts in a in a in a score that were in his notebooks, and we see this in the film, by the way, too. But you have access to at the Library of Congress. The public, I suppose, researchers have access to. The Library of Congress to... is like going to heaven without dying. <laughs> I mean, there are two kinds of librarians in the world. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, there are those who see themselves as facilitating your work and even will tell you about something that just came in that they know you would be interested in. And then there are those who see themselves as protecting the collection from you. And the Library of Congress is the first kind, generous to the point of even letting me stay after hours as long as I didn't tell anybody forgive off, me off the record forgive me Ray <laughs> you know but off the record that's right but those are those but original they, the original uh, manuscript books that Barbara was jotting some of his thoughts into including the great quote that launched you into much kind of thought about Barbara's identity and his his quality um, by Franz Liszt that you oh yeah that that that, that is actually in his notebook right right yeah which is there is a degree of innovation beyond which one does not pass without danger lamartine had the gift of seizing the exact point of permissible innovation and this was in his sketchbook right so it was in such a sketchbook at the library of congress and that, I, when example, i read it i got chills because i thought this is his credo mm -hmm, mm -hmm. essentially sure sure he delicately navigating that line between the modern world and the classical world, yeah. among other things. Yeah. yeah. So this second string quartet is the kind of thing that you saw evidence of or traces of in sketchbooks. Well, yeah, 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 but but not enough that it could be performed. Um, it's interesting. What how... was interesting the, the the lost violin sonata that we know was performed. Let's move along to that. 
what did, yeah. what did you find? Well, there was a, there was a a program at Curtis that showed Barbara had played of the lost a, a violin sonata. By the way, we we have in the repertoire in Barbara's opuses we have a cello sonata, and we don't as a, a opus numbered published piece yeah. we don't have a violin sonata. Well, now we do. Sort but of, not right? the whole thing, That's only right. the last movement. So how do we how do we lose the rest? Well, because I got a telephone call from an art dealer in Pennsylvania saying that they uh, th that um, I can't remember the name of the man, an artist mm -hmm. who had lived in Samuel Barber's house, actually Daisy Barber, Sam's mother, had uh, rented a room to him. and that um, that, that in amidst his stuff, there was some music, the first page of which said um, a sonata for cello and, uh, and piano, mm -hmm. you know, pianoforte. And, or violin, you mean? No. Oh, this is the cello sonata, okay. Right, right. It was the first, what, what it, and, and, and there was a, um, a date at the end, which was 1929. And I thought, this is strange, because the cello sonata was written later than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so I said, send me photocopies or, you know, scan in uh, the first three pages and the last page with the date on it. Mm -hmm. So the first three pages, it turned out, were the missing pages from the holograph manuscript of the cello Sonata uh, that was at the Library of Congress. Um, the last page had a date that was not corresponding to the cello sonata. It was a date 1929, and and we're talking as in, I in looked general, at the page. These are the student years at Curtis, right? As I looked at the page, I saw um, that. Actually, each system, the top was a um, not a, an alto line, or you know, it was a G clef, and it was a violin part. Mm -hmm. So then I said, "Send me page four of that manuscript of the you know that they had discovered," and uh, they sent me that page, and it had the Roman numeral three and Allegro agitato on it which was the um, the last movement listed in the programs that Curtis had from that period of the violin sonata. That was the, the listing for Allegro Agitato was the third movement. So then I realized that the fourth page of this manuscript was not cello anymore. And it turns out it was the lost movement one of the movements of the violin sonata. So, I mean, pausing there. And very Brahmsian in character. I see. As you said about the cello sonata, too, which is from the same general That's period. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But pausing there, I mean, you're in this business, right, of, of this sort of detective work. Yes. And what, what always amazes me is how um, stuff like this gets lost. But I guess maybe at the same time there are a few explanations. So at this point in his student life, he certainly hasn't gained a publisher like Shermer. So there's nobody guarding and protecting 
the scores, even if there were scores in circulation, for example, for the performance of the violin sonata. But is it is it just simply that sometimes once the performance is done, they just throw them away, or or they just get no. lost to history somehow? No, they if they're not published, they stay in the composer's estate usually. I see. Uh, or would you say the composer just collects back the scores that were used in the concert, and then it's really up to the composer or his family to keep good care of them? Well, anything that was published, that was publicly performed, not as a student, but mm. in, say, Carnegie Hall or whatever, would have been published ultimately. Sure. Um, but we're too far back in time where he's too young for that sort of thing to ensure that all of his works were preserved. Yeah, but that particular sonata... Also, there's some feeling that he didn't think it was worthy mm, interesting. because it was so Brahmsian. You've said that about the cello sonata, too. You've called it, you've, you've kind of characterized it as a student work. Well, it was written when he was a student. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I love the cello sonata. It's, it's among my oh, it's favorite gorgeous. pieces. Yeah. And yet, um, it, I suppose at the time, you're also, you're also thinking, you're also dealing with in that era an anxiety that Samuel Barber has um, about his identity as a, quote, modern composer. Is he being modernistic enough, or is he only writing music that throws back to Brahms? And you've said that the cello sonata and the violin sonata have a Brahmsian character well, to them. You have to... He was very self-conscious, wasn't he? Um, yes and no. He was very influenced by his mentor, his mm -hmm. uncle Sidney Homer who encouraged him to listen to your inner voice, mm -hmm. write what you're hearing and what you're experiencing. And he never wavered from the path that he was in because of this kind of encouragement mm -hmm. and because he believed it was the right thing to do. Well, that, that's a great bridge for us to next talk about the next um, new thing in your second edition, which is some correspondence with Pierre Dupont in regards to um, Two Longwood Gardens, which is an organ work. It's actually a bonus that was added after the documentary was finished. I made a little mini documentary about that specific piece, and so you can see uh, some of that correspondence, or hear some of that correspondence read as we see the Longwood organ. But what was interesting about that correspondence to me was um, to feed off of that last point was that Barbara's really sort of apologetic <laughs> to Pierre Dupont saying, I don't know what you're going to think of this. He's a young boy, but essentially yeah. at the time. He was writing his gratitude. T tell me more. For letting him play his his organ. Barbara was an organist. He played in, in a church in his hometown. And in fact, in the diary, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, who he couldn't stand anymore. And then he finally decided to quit. But he wrote a piece for the DuPont organ. At, Long, at Longwood Gardens. Tell me more about that. So Longwood Gardens is a place where it was sort of Pierre Dupont's house, wasn't it? Yes, or... it was, and it still exists. Mm -hmm. um, I was there. I've, I've seen it. It's really quite, quite wonderful. Um, so there's a commission to to write a piece um, for that organ. I believe so. I'm. Yeah, and it's it's a, but in any yeah. case, I mean the title says it all. It says to Longwood Gardens. So Barbara's writing sort of a a pay on to Longwood Gardens because yeah. is it not true that Barbara probably roamed the grounds for inspiration as oh, a I'm young sure. man? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So what do you get out of that correspondence? What does it reveal to you about Barbara as a as a growing composer? 
Well, he was a teenager then, and, <laughs> and that's kind of exciting to think that he could be commissioned to, to write a piece mm -hmm. for anybody at that stage of his life. And um, I just, I was, I gravitated myself towards the way that he said, this will sound awfully strange to me. And in fact, you know, my mother, who was somebody who, who whose opinion he definitely regarded highly, um, he was especially considering how she would think it was very weird and atonal and modernistic. And so in a sense, it's his way of already testing the waters of how far can he push that line as expressed yeah. by the Litz quote. Yeah, maybe one would say that. Well, let's, let's talk about something else that's a major addition to the second edition, and that's some a little bit more intimate correspondence between Barber and Charles Turner. So can you first tell me who's Charles Turner overall? I mean, what does he do? Well, Charles Turner, it has to do with other people in Barber's life besides Minotti. Barber believed in a single person, a single love. And Minotti actually conveys this to me as well. Minotti had other friends and so particularly when they were separated because of the founding of the Spoleto Festival, which took so much, and there are letters from Minotti to Barber which analyze this distance between them, developing them, because their careers were going in different directions. Um, so Barber had a series of men, but they all, and I interviewed them all, but they were they all knew that Minotti was number one. And Charles Turner, who was very helpful, he had saved Barber's correspondence as well. He had traveled with Barber. That was really what it was about. He's a violinist, right? Uh, he was a violinist, that's right. And he gave the performance of the violin uh, concerto in Europe. Right, yeah. right. In fact, that, that sets up the funny moment uh, with the Belez anecdote that Pierre Brevignon yeah, describes there, in the there documentary. There are letters that I have discovered, some flirtatious in tone, actually, in the Charles Turner's papers that reveal the vicissitudes of producing, say, Barber's ballet souvenirs mm -hmm. and Barber's preparations for Vanessa and his creative blocks towards the end of his life. Mm -hmm. So these were, you know, these were letters that had sort of disappeared that then came to light. There's similar correspondence with uh, the composer Francis Poulenc. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, Poulenc... Barbara respected Poulenc's music. They were good friends, one of his few composer friends, actually. And when Barbara wrote the melody passagère uh, in French, she was very concerned um, that Poulenc would find them authentic, you know. Um, and he wrote a parody of a love letter to... Uh, uh, a pastiche, essentially, in French, in response to Poulenc's listening to Barber sing Melody Passagera at his home in Capricorn. I see. Yeah. So there's a bit of a flirtatious kind of quality to these correspondence between yeah. Turner and Poulenc. But and Poulenc Barber. had his own, you know, life. Life. Yeah. <laughs> I see. Interesting. Yeah. Um, another really long-standing sort of patron 
and character in the Barber story for sure is Mary Curtis Bach. Oh gosh, yes. So yeah. she's the founder of the Curtis Institute. I call her the Angel Mary because the Angel Mary. because you could see from his car she was the founder of the Curtis Institute of and, Music. And what's her background again? Uh, she was the daughter of um, a, a gigantic Mary, corporation. Mary basically. Bach. <laughs> basically, it's, yeah. a, it's a publishing empire. Right? That's right. Of the Curtis, yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. And um, she, so we're talking first graduating class of Curtis Institute. Barbara's in this experiment, or this at least this brand new school that Mary Curtis Bach founds. That is now, of course, the Curtis Institute, named after right. her. So, what did you find? That since the first edition. Well, there is more correspondence uh, between Mary Curtis Bach and Stokowski and the transcription of Oliver Daniels' interview with Barber in 1979, which recount the fate of Barber's first piano concerto, which was written in 1930 and was then destroyed. Yeah, here we are again with that sort of regret, but also interesting kind of mystery because this sort of thing includes... The question, maybe these things disappear because, like the Second Symphony, which has a more, uh, there's a lot more documentary oh, evidence yeah. on that. Yeah. But you, a composer has the fundamental right to pull things out of their Absolutely. history. Absolutely. And so that first piano concerto, first thing I'd love to know is, I mean, the second, uh, the, the, what now we could say is the second, but really is the piano concerto. My, I've always said, my personal testimony is that I actually hated the Adagio for Strings the first few times I heard it anyways. <laughs> it was misused in some films, for example. Well, it's been, there's a whole book. Of course. 600 pages. I proofread it, actually. Sure, sure. So there's, there's <laughs> that. Wayne Wenzel. But, but yeah. it was the piano concerto and then the violin concerto around the same time. But particularly because the piano concerto is such a muscular, modernistic, loud, and yet delicately well, soft in the middle later, movement. That was later. Sure. Not the first one. That's that what I'm wrote. getting at yeah. is the fact that if I think of that as the the piano concerto, yeah. now it's a huge enigma to me. What was Barber's idea of a piano concerto in the earlier years? Do you have any clue as to how that sounded? No. What, no. what is your best guess, Barbara? Not, I'm not sure referring that to anything, it, but just your instincts. From descriptions that it was very Brahmsian okay. because he played a lot of Brahms. He loved Brahms. And I understand this for myself. You know, he's my favorite composer. Brahms. Yeah. Brahms. Well, one of my favorites, but but um, he played a lot of Brahms, and I think that he wrote, therefore, some some of that romantic style into his music. Was it a commission for some particular pianist, or not? In, no, was, I not in don't particular? believe it was. I see. Okay. No, no. So, so in this new correspondence, we see some more information about the fact that at least it existed, or that it yeah. was being worked on. But it never was realized into a full sort of orchestral concert presentation. Is that perhaps safe That's to right, say? That's right, because, of, because well, there was a rehearsal of it, mm. actually, with Ormandy, and, but he didn't want to perform it. That, whose decision was that, do you think? Ormandy's. That sounds kind of judgmental. <laughs> yes, it was. And yet, we, I guess maybe then... Not Ormandy, I'm sorry, it was Stokowski. Stokowski, yeah. I see. Yeah. And so... Does that happen in classical music history where, you know, I, I guess it's a broad question, isn't it? But it sounds kind of like a, a real defeat. I don't know that he felt defeated. Mm -hmm. He just went on doing what he was doing. Um, Mary Curtis Bach, back to that, because, sure. because she 
was very, very supportive of Barbara and Minotti's career, giving them money when they graduated to buy Steinway pianos, um, helping them with their apartment, helping them buy Capricorn. A pool at Capricorn. <laughs> yeah, right. I guess. I don't know that. But she um, she was an angel. She really was. And in the second edition of my book, I have a whole um, sort of interlude, mm-hmm. I call it, called The Angel Mary. She was really, she was really quite amazing. Um, Curtis is still, as far as I know... Uh, there's no tuition. You you know the kids have to be talented to get in. So let's let's talk about another kind of new thing that you've documented in the second edition that hits close to home because of the fact that we've had the privilege of getting to know over the years. Myself in particular, not having previously you know I have you have a longer history with this than I do. But when I when we I have a memory, we're sitting right now in your apartment in New York City where on these couches, um, the nephew of Samuel Barber, David Beatty, came to watch an early rough cut of the documentary. That's right, yeah. Um, he is the executor of the estate. Along with, by the way, the daughter of Iso Brazelli, which added to some... Susanna, Susanna, right. right. Yeah. So um, David is a, a really uh, nice gentleman who um, has a lot of fondness for his uncle and who... Um, has an, a soft-spoken and, and authentic perspective on who Samuel Barber was and what he was like. And wow. it's a little different, in a sense, than maybe what some people would say about Samuel Barber in social circles. Um, but even more than that, I think the word that's, that's kind of leapt out at me was that you describe Barber as having taken on a somewhat paternal nature yes, because, for David Beatty. So please tell me more about that. Well, Barber's sister, Barber was very close to his sister. Whose name was? Sarah. Sarah, right. And, but her nickname was Susie. And it's, what's interesting is my mom's name, her Hebrew name was Sora, Sarah, right. and but she was Susan, Susie. <laughs> I see. <laughs> And I also had an uncle, Sidney, you know, oh, wow. and my dad's name was Samuel. But that had nothing to do with me choosing this. And this there's topic. a few more coincidences, I know. <laughs> yeah, they're really amazing. But at any rate, um, when she died, she left, I, I believe it was four children, and he became sort of very close to them. He was very close to his sister. Uh, she was a pianist, and so... The kids were under his wing, I think, which is not unusual. I see this, for example, with when my oldest daughter died and my daughter-in-law, my oldest son's wife, plays a kind of maternal role, Mm -hmm. giving advice to the two children that are now, you know, in their 20s, but nevertheless, 12 years ago, she... And, you know, this is not unusual, I would say. But at any rate, so when David Beatty came to my house for an interview and I opened the door, I gasped inside because he looked so much like Samuel Barber that I couldn't get that out of my head the whole time he was with me. And he was very generous, supporting my work in terms of encouraging me giving me the letters that he had. Um, he, he was really, he is uh, a real saint with regard to that because he wanted to see this done 
right, mm -hmm. you know. Sure. Um, Let's go through one last thing that's in this list, if you will, of okay. new additions, and that's it's a it's a it's a little interesting little nuance that I was particularly intrigued in in the world of telecommunications. Actually, William Tortolano's discovery that in the Second Symphony there's what? Well, there is <laughs> there is um, Morse code uh, rhythmic patterns. Yeah, because it was written. Uh, Yes, for the Boston Symphony, but it was a commission by the Army Air Force. And when Barber went to write it, he went out to where they were training. He was in the Army then, you know, and he went out to Texas where they were training and he went up on these flights so that he could understand what it was like to be in the air and maybe under pressure, you know. And... So Tortolano was able to actually, he did a beautiful analysis of the work. And, and that is incorporated in the second edition of the book. I mean, I don't mind spending a minute, not much more, but I mean, on the second symphony, my, one of my regrets, including the fact that the piano concerto wasn't in the formal running time of the documentary film, though I did have the opportunity afterward to have a bonus you know, clip that I added um, about the piano concerto, which again is one of my favorite of the Barber pieces. Yeah. But my, one of my regrets is not having a section on the Second Symphony. Part of the conceit of the piece was that I wanted to only kind of narrow in on some of Barber's works where I could show people performing it, rehearsing it, and so on. Yeah. People yeah. grappling with the pieces. So I never had that opportunity. One of the reasons is that the Second Symphony is hardly performed. And then the reason for that, it's not in the official opus. And one of the reasons there is yeah. Barber disapproved. There's a very dramatic story of him that's, that's of him going to the Shermer offices and supposedly ripping, ripping up the up paper everything. of the manuscripts. Right. Is there something new to say about that? Well, first of all, he didn't really rip up everything. Okay, I don't. That was maybe in Nathan Broder's book. I believe, I believe. so. Yeah. yeah, you know. And but, after all, it's still performed to this day. That's right. Every once exactly. in a great while. What Barber said about this, um, when he described it to his uncle Homer, uh, um, you know, Sidney Homer, that suggests that he, he always said there was no program involved. But th this little quote here, um, the first movement tries to express the dynamism and excitement of flying and ends up way 50,000 feet, exclamation point. The second is a lonely sort of folk song melody for English horn against backgrounds of string clouds. It might be called solo flights at night, which he turned it into, actually. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, there is no program. And even in the notes for the Boston premiere, the composer, he denied stoutly that there were programmatic intentions in the music. And they say the composer has made no attempt to describe a scene or tell a story since the emphasis in this work is on the emotional rather than the narrative factor. But that is typical of Barber. It's an emotional response that he puts into the music. Mm -hmm. And that was encouraged by his uncle and his inner voice. 
I mean, I've long wondered about that anxiety about program music. It's almost the default, if not lazy, thing for a program note writer to write. When you go to concerts at the symphony and you open up the bulletins, there's the latest program notes talking about is this programmatic or not, which sort of is beside the point. You also have an interesting example in Barber's greatest, some of Barber's greatest works based on literature, like Overture to the School for Scandal, that are not so to speak, programmatic, and yet they were inspired by the, 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 the literary work that is named in the title. Well, there's a difference between inspiration, inspiring you to write something, and trying to have a program like for a ballet or something, you know, because that is quite different. Sure. And with Barber, it was emotional expression. Sure. Music is that's what it is. I feel that way about it personally. I get it though in the sense that Barber was responding to the experience of en engaging with literature in music as opposed to trying to set specific character moments of a, of a narrative that's right. into music and saying this is the moment when this happens. Medea is pure in that sense even though it's ballet. Right. We don't sit there and listen to the music and say now I can see this happening or that yeah. happening. Yeah. For that's, sure. I agree. But the other misgivings about that second symphony must have to do, I think, hasn't it kind of by now matured into an understanding that we'll never know, but it might have to do also with Barber not wanting to have been perceived as a sort of uh, nationalistic composer, especially as things evolved into his later years where American military aggression was not popular yeah. towards the end of his life. That's a very good point. Yeah, I'd have to think about that. So they, we have an interesting planting of Morse code into the second symphony as one of the other findings in your um, second edition. So um, your other thing that your second edition generally addresses, but particularly in the preface to the second edition addresses, that I think is something that you have maybe found yourself fallen into over the years more than ever having you know, put too much energy or thought into is his, um, his sexuality. And so you very elegantly address that in the preface to your second edition. So when it comes to that, I mean, I've always respected and heard you say directly that your responsibility was mostly, mostly is maybe the word, operative word, to just simply dive into his music and unpack who is this person, what were the circumstances, what was, what was he writing about, and then the musicology of the pieces themselves. Yeah. Um, and yet, th th this is still part of it, and yeah. you did address it in the first edition, and here you are expanding a bit more in the second edition about um, his sexuality. First of all, he was sort of out, but he wasn't, right? In other words, he didn't make it well, something publicly... But that was, that was typical, I think, of the time. Sure, sure. You know, I think it was typical of the time. With regard to his romantic relationships with men, there is abundant new material, quotations from his personal diary, even at the... which is ambiguously intimating, perhaps, his earliest homosexual inclinations to his friend Wally. You know, I have not, there's no written out, but, you know, the excitement of we're going to be alone, this kind of thing. And his search for the perfect friend. Romantic letters to and from Carl, John Carlo Minotti, his lifetime partner. A poignant rumination inscribed on sketches for Vanessa that indicates Barber's need to reconcile himself to the loss of their intimacy, 
while he's looking out at the lighthouse. And when I read this description, which is in the book, I burst into tears in the Library of Congress, and someone came over to me, actually from the theater department, and he said, what's the matter, Barbara? I said, I feel as if I've invaded his privacy. When I come across something that's so so personal and so heart-wrenching, but it tells you what was on his mind when he was writing Vanessa at the time. That was it. And his his quest for, quote, as Minotti said, an ideal love, the kind of love he would have liked to have had, all of which illuminate Barbara's relationship with Minotti, these letters, from its beginning through its troubled conclusion. Um, there's also more focus on Barbara's inner life, especially his expression of loneliness, a thread that pervades his thoughts, but in public was often disguised by the affability and wit that gained him enormous social acceptance. Mm -hmm. This feeling, this in the diary, there's something, there's a, a quote that where he says, I wish people would not call me a genius. I'd rather be a regular person like Auntie Mame or something. And in fact, I'm going to call the diary I'm going to give it a, a title, The Reluctant Genius. The subtitle will be what Barbara wrote on the outside of his diary, The Absolutely Private Diary of Samuel Barber, underscored three times, you know. <laughs> but that really gives you this sense of loneliness that, that a composer has because he's working alone all the time. And, and it's, it, it risks... Psycho psychological analysis that isn't called for, but I guess I'm drawn into the idea that he sort of brought it upon himself like any good artist, is maybe the conceit you can put on that. I mean, Vanessa was one clue where it's almost laying the case, making the case that um, any relationship is an extraordinary compromise that might fight against that inner life of a composer that's so necessary to write if you're in the category of barber this wrenching, melancholic, authentically despairing music. Right. And you find in Hermit songs, it just goes to the depths mm -hmm. of the theme, you know, alone I came into this world, alone I shall go from it. And you get that in Barber, truer than maybe any other composer, at least that I ever heard in my life, where I don't think the ending of Barber's story was to be, was, uh, should have been, that it's just a happy ending. Um, I don't think composers are damned to have unhappy endings, but all the clues in Barber's music kind of drives you to this idea that it, there wasn't meant to, to be that ultimate happiness, even though the diaries are giving us clues that he wondered whether that was possible. Yeah, yeah. I have a personal anecdote about Hermit songs. Please. Which you can... Um, when my cat was the end of her life at the age of 19 and I had to take her to the New York veterinary hospital and she was lying on the table and the veterinarian was a woman and she said to me I'm going to go out and get a, a sedative and I thought was she getting it for me or for Papea, my cat, you know? And she went out of the room, and I started to hum the song that I 
Pangor, sweet Pangor, how happy we are, from Hermit Songs, Scholar and Cat. That was our song, you know, and that Barbara wrote it. I get chills every time I think about it. And I was humming it because when I was writing, my cat was up in the country with me, you know, and so the vet walks back in and she hears me humming and she says, oh, that's Samuel Barber's, one of his hermit songs. She said, I love his music. I'm a cellist and I play his cello sonata. And out of the ashes, Phoenix rises. We were plotting that we would play together. All because I sang Pangor, Sweet Pangor, just hummed it, and she happened to recognize it. And that, that was Samuel Barber looking over us, you know, really. So, and to to be even to be no to be even more personal. I mean, it, we're we're spending some time looking back over, I guess, over thirty years, and so you've had things in your life. In other words, as all lives have ups and downs and so on. Yeah. I guess one thing that I explored in this in this particular case, as seen in the documentary, um, I asked I asked the question of John Carigliano, but it's somewhat of a universal question as to whether or not this music, this melancholy music things like the adagio for strings, um, are the things that you turn to when you are dealing with what the music suggests is that tragic quality, or whether it's the last thing you want to hear when those things happen. But moreover, I just am curious if, you, if, if, if it's even beside yourself, what function does this music serve to people and what function has it served for you? And even recently, well, recently, when I had this unexpected accident in my lobby when they were putting down marble floors, and I walked out of my apartment and boom, fell on my hip that had been replaced in 2003 and damaged it and also uh, damaged the femur and ended up in the hospital and rehab for two and a half months, delaying the publication of my book, by the way, of the second edition. But I felt that um, when I was in, at night, when I couldn't go to sleep, I would play the adagio because it made me feel rested. And it was like it was telling me not to worry, you know. It had a, I had a personal response to it. Mm. I can't even identify everything that it was. Mm -hmm. But so I used it actually. Mm -hmm. And I think that in my life, music is the most, one of the most important things other than my children, you know, family and stuff like that. It's the, the thing that, that I look forward to because I play with a cellist once a week and, you know, that's, it's very important mm -hmm. to keep, even if you're not a professional, it's important to keep playing and practicing. I see. Um, when it comes to Bar the later part of Barbara's life that we've uh, alluded to, Antony and Cleopatra has been historically, and honestly, even in your first edition, used as a sort of, if you will, uh, kind of turning point in Barbara's life that is sort of the kitchen sink to describe everything, such as what? Less output? of works, less acclaim, um, depression, alcoholism, 
and then the end of Barber. Yeah, but and so it's too easy. It in wasn't. A sense. It wasn't because of the failure of the opera. Let's he get in. Had, let's get into that. All right, please. He had had other bad reviews mm. in the course of his life. It was that the his his emotional depression and alcoholism and creative blocks toward the end of his career were only in part a very small part, a response to the vitriolic reception of the opera, Antony and Cleopatra. But most certainly they were triggered primarily by the continued disintegration of his relationship with John Carlo Minotti, resulting in the forced sale of Capricorn, the home the two had shared for more than 30 years. And I refer to these events in the book as the dissolution of a marriage. Mm -hmm. um, but I cover essentially the centrality of these issues to Barber's diminished productivity and their profound influence on his choice of texts. And that's what you have to look at. Right. He, his texts always were autobiographically, you know, inspired. So, so what are some examples of these later works? Well, that despite and still, for example, the lovers, the cantata, um, Barber wrote a good deal of music about love, and he often chose to set poetry about heterosexual love, texts by James Stevens, Pablo Neruda, Robert Graves. Nevertheless, his songs focus on the variety of university feelings common to all romantic love affairs, regardless of the lover's sexual orientation, passion, sensuality, jealousy, loss, and despair. Is there anything now, after all these years, to add to this idea? It's a little bit trivial, maybe, but to say what would Samuel Barber have yet written had he been with us longer? Oh, who am I to say? Who are you to say? How about what would you have liked to have heard? Well, I would have loved if he had written maybe um, more music for the cello and the piano that I could play. I'm trying well, to learn. Well, that's selfish, isn't it? Uh, well, it is, right. But I'm also, you see, I have not yet learned his his uh, the the cello sonata that's difficult you know and certainly i can't play the piano sonata you know but uh, as good a pianist as i am not that good uh i need lessons in order to do that <laughs> you know but um i just wish yeah i wish he could write more music but i wish my real fervent desire is that it would be more there would be more performances of what he's already written because I don't think there are enough performances of of less of, of uh, something off the mainstream hits such as yeah the I think that the piano sonata gets performed by those who are capable of it the songs yes there are always you know lots of songs are sung conservatory students regularly performing absolutely them. not only sure on the shining night but mm -hmm. you know everything uh, that he all the songs that he wrote and, and since they've all been published now one way or another uh, even more so um, but the orchestral music um, you know which ones will be performed but, but rarely mm -hmm. not as much as I would uh, the Philharmonic is doing the first symphony next year I'm happy to say um, I have a little anecdote Okay, what is it? Uh, just one week. It was literally just one week ago that at the National Symphony Orchestra in Washington, D.C., the program opened with the second, I'm sorry, with the first essay for orchestra. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it's a piece I love. It's one of the first pieces that I 
loved of Barber's. Um, but I have been going to the National Symphony as a subscriber since uh, for for many years. All right, and um, I remember. Well, it has been a getting to know the audience slowly but surely. It's kind of the subscriber experience at orchestra. I have that at Carnegie, and it's not only the people you sit next to, but it's also the people across the hall or the people who seem to regularly come and buy seats wherever they can. There's one lady who um, she's a Japanese woman who always comes by herself, and um, she's about my age. Every time she'd come to a concert, there would be sort of like a reason I could tell she was there because she seemed to gravitate towards deeply sorrowful music. And I'm probably piecing it together that way, especially because she always sobbed while she was there. Now, what, and so you get these clues over time. There's a few other characters in the hall always. There's this really big guy who sits in the front row in the same seat every Thursday night at the National Symphony who's a taxi cab driver that's sort of a known personality in town and so similar to that I'd see her in the hall from time to time but she was always just sort of crying um, in most cases right or in many cases and what's more though is that when I finally had inevitably after so many years of going uh, she sat next to me a few times uh, or near me. And I could also tell that she had mental problems, if you will. In other words, a disability of some sort. She was talking to herself. She would have nervous tics and that sort of thing. Um, but sure enough, there I am at Barber's first essay, which I went into saying to myself and thinking to myself as I have over the years, in some ways that's his most deeply despairing, melancholic piece, yeah. at least to me. I think the Adagio is more of like a cathedral. It's this place where you can turn it into anything. In the film, we hear Virgil Thompson saying that it's you know passionate. Um, and then you've just said in this podcast that uh, it was written under very happy circumstances. Yeah. That first essay, though, gives a very early clue as to Barber's at least deep connection with melancholy. Um, it goes there. So there she was. And so I'm sitting in my seat and the show's just about, or the performance just about to start. And there she comes, sit, she sat right next to me. Oh boy. So it kind of weirdly came full circle to me. I, it's not necessarily to say that Barber's fundamental value was to attract this sort of like community of people who crave that deep connection with yeah. despair or sadness. And yet at the same time, there she was sitting next to me. And yes, she cried, you know, she was, she also had the nervous tics and she was having a conversation sort of with herself and she was sitting awkwardly upright and kind of twisted. Um, But there she was once again, connecting with this type of music. It's sad, but uh, I guess I'll ask you, and I guess there's no, uh, any answer, there's no answer, but yes, but doesn't, isn't there a sort of interesting community that has grown up around Barbara? And have you seen that? about the kinds of people who are drawn to Barber's music, that they turn to Barber's music for just that thing? Uh, that's hard to answer because mm-hmm. I, I do, I know that very often I'll see people who knew him who were at the concerts, you know. Um, but I can't really say identify well, that, that really could lead into another question here. And it, it really is the end of your... Um, the, the, the surprising twist 
at the end of your preface to the second edition. Because there you talk about the value, the, the remaining value, the surviving value, the eternal value yeah. of Barber's music today. And you incorporate these interesting ideas about what technology is doing to us. So we walk around oh, the streets of New yeah. York yeah, yeah, or we're yeah. on the subway platform and we see people buried in their smartphones. Um, and we are increasingly, in a sense, disconnected with the world. Yeah. So what is that breeding in terms of our musical preferences? Or what is it, what's the entry point for Barbara well, into all of that? It's what or I... Do you, want to, do you want to just read it? I do. Uh, please yeah, do. Yeah. Um, there is one thought I want to leave with my readers because of its importance to understanding Barbara's music. While his music gains added significance within our strong current trend towards romanticism, I think performances of his music are flourishing, not merely because of that trend. I suggest with regard to the timeliness and timelessness of his music, there's a certain irony that in this era of extraordinary technological advance, the very machines that allow us to communicate instantly across the globe have created a climate of depersonalization devoid of emotional nuance. And it may be that at such a time, music that is unabashedly romantic, that elicits so direct an emotional response, becomes more valued. So that's my final (laughs) assessment on the matter. I think that's a great place to end it. Okay. Thank you, Barbara, so much for sitting for this. Uh, it brings me back to the, in this very same space as seen in the film. I just recall with such sentimentality the brilliance just... that I was able to document when you sat by your piano. And I think that went on for, what, four or five hours? I am so grateful that you did this film, you know. It's just yet another medium within, with, with which people can engage with this music that is, is built for the ages. Yeah. But there's, there's all different ways for us to engage. But there's nothing better than a book that fully documents um, a composer's legacy because yeah. that in particular kind of won't go away. You're holding it in your hands right now. I just hope that... And it's a physical object as yeah. opposed to something fungible like media and film and so on. But, you know, there's an irony to books coming out when today people seem to prefer digital devices, but there is a sort of romance yeah. to books that you can turn the pages and they can be sticking, sitting on a library shelf and it really won't go away. People will be, will be referring to this book a little bit after you're gone, if not centuries after you're gone. You know, it's interesting that my younger, youngest granddaughter, who was homeschooled by my oldest daughter, uh, Ruby, when she, as soon as she learned how to read, she would carry not one, but two books all the time. She still is that way. She's in college now, but she likes to hold the book and read it. It's not a question of listening. And that's not true in general, you know, of what goes on around us. What I also I want to give you a copy of the book 
and inscribe it. Well, I already have one. I already bought an advanced copy, of course. I was one of the first uh, <laughs> I didn't inscribe it, rabid <laughs> fans to get your new book. And I encourage everybody else. In fact, I have a link in the podcast description where you can get a copy of the book also. Oh, good. So Did you, did you bring the book with you? <laughs> no. So then how can I inscribe it? We'll work it out. I'll All get right. one of those ex-Libra stickers or okay, something like that. Okay, please do. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Barbara.